So I want to continue today with the uh, theme that I've been exploring for the last three weeks, which is the theme of cultivating freedom through our practice. I think freedom is the great, is a great theme, is the great theme. It's really the great, the great drama, really, to be a human being, is to come to freedom. And this is the, the, I think, the central intention of our meditation, to come to freedom. There are different kinds of freedom. The, you know, we can talk about um, the social dimensions of freedom. And the particular focus of the meditation is to find a kind of inner freedom. Interesting question about the relationship between the social freedoms, the ones, for example, that are the hallmark of this country, certain civil liberties. Liberty is really a synonym of freedom. The civil freedoms, we might say. The civil liberties of speech and association, uh, expression, religion, and so forth. Um, One way to look at it, in many ways, the social freedoms set conditions through which one can find inner freedom. Even though people can find inner freedom in any social conditions, but in many ways it's more conducive when, when there's not oppression. I mean, people have found great freedom in jail, you know, and in under oppressive conditions. But on the other hand, we can certainly appreciate the way that we can come to Spirit Rock without fear of persecution, at least by the authorities. Maybe what you do with your spouse or your family, that's another matter. <laughs> Sometimes there's persecution within the family. I'm just joking. So. <laughs> Sometimes, no, no, I'm not really joking. There's sometimes issues. So, um, but I think it's very important to look at this um, horizon of deep freedom that's really right at the center of the practice that we do. You know, some of us may meditate or may come here for a certain amount of peace or relaxation or understanding or like-minded people, and those are very important but right at the center of this practice is a very, very deep freedom. Ultimately a freedom that goes beyond life and death. And that goes beyond the personal self. And so it's something that's um, a powerful pointing within the tradition. So I've been speaking about the freedom that we find within what I would have been calling ordinary mind, and then also pointing to what I've called extraordinary mind. And by mind here, this came out in the questions last time, by mind I'm talking more broadly. I'm not talking about the mental, but talking about what we might call the mind and heart. And the, there's not an easy translation from the Asian terms. The words that are typically translated as mind include both mind and heart. So that's really what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the mental or about the thinking process, but really about the, really about the freedom that we find with an extraordinary development of the mind and heart, and really the body as well, really, uh, of this um, inner flowering 
that is the that is the aim of our practice. And so I talked about um, I talked about ordinary mind, you know, our ordinary experience and how we find freedom and how we when we cultivate mindfulness we cultivate concentration we live an ethical life we become able to see more and more into our patterns to notice particularly those kind of patterns which get us stuck with enough mindfulness enough awareness enough loving kindness we can work with them and find some kind of freedom um, from what previously may have dominated us i may have had conditioning that led me to really react strongly when someone would criticize me, you know, in a relationship, at work. And when I stay with this pattern long enough, study it, bring loving kindness and so forth, over time, with a sequence of learning, I become more able, when that pattern arises, to have um, mindfulness that notices that it's happening, enough awareness that gives space around the, let's say, the tendency to be triggered. And with enough of that, I, at times, don't have to get taken away. I have enough awareness. I notice myself starting to become reactive, angry, whatever, withdrawing. Someone criticizes me. I notice the tendency. And maybe I've worked out a different way to work with it than the usual. And we could say at that moment, I have freedom. I don't have to go down the road that in the past I couldn't fail to trod, so to speak. Tread? Tread. (laughs) Trod already sounds like suffering. (laughs) So... um, So this is a huge part of our practice, and I've been talking about that. And I've also talked about what I call extraordinary mind. And we've looked at that both in a meditative context and in in what we might call the, the context of the ordinary flow of life. And I've talked about extraordinary mind, or we could say extraordinary mind, heart, and body as being capable of being described in a number of different ways. We could say that it's a very high development or a very high level of awareness or it's a very high level of love or it's um, more negatively often connected with nirvana or nibbana where it's understood as the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion where there's a maybe momentary or maybe there for a longer period where greed, hatred, or delusion is not there. So it was very, very interesting to look uh, last time and to hear some reports about, about this extraordinary mind. Another way to talk about extraordinary mind is it's a way of experiencing beyond the usual constructions of daily life. And what are those usual constructions? They're the constructions of self. A sense of here I am, I'm here to manipulate the objects of the world and the people of the world 
for the purpose of avoiding pain and gaining what's pleasant. And there can be a sense of self in relationship to objects, in relationship to others. That's a very strong sense of self. There can be a sense of objects being out there. The ordinary conception of the world is there are objects, there's a glass, there's a table, there's a pen, there's a shirt, and so forth. And in this extraordinary mind, in a sense, we go beyond those ordinary sense of objects, that ordinary sense of object. We go outside of the ordinary constructions of time. In the ordinary constructions of time, there is past, present, and future. We check the time. Um, We know when the talk is starting, when it's ending, and so forth. We relate to time. And we also, in the ordinary way of uh, experiencing, are very much in a world of concepts and language. And what seems to happen with extraordinary mind is we go beyond all of those constructions. Now, it has to be said that those constructions are very important. They help us orient in the world. They help us um, organize things. We use language to know uh, what an object is. We, you know, I'm very appreciative of there being water here. And we use, for all sorts of pragmatic reasons, we use language, we talk about self, we talk about objects, we use time in a certain way. And it's certainly um, very, very pragmatically helpful, and we couldn't imagine human life without those constructions. So what's the problem? Is there a problem with those ordinary constructions? Well, from the point of view of practice, the problem is is that we use them, but we tend to believe that they're ultimately valid. In other words, we buy into them. You know, and it's a big thing. You know, as kids, we have to be trained to enter this world. A child who's newly born does not have all of those constructions. I think probably until recently, many of us naively thought that a person would have those constructions. But we know, you know, I mean, we know that we have to teach children all sorts of things. We have to teach children, here's, this is what this object is. Here's the word for this. Here's the name for this. I remember, I remember one time I was with my nephew, the first time he ever saw the full moon, you know. And I pointed out the full moon. I said, moon. And he was, I, I don't know how old, maybe a year and a half or something. And he just said, oh, the eyes got really wide and said, moon. <laughs> you know? So we go through these constructions. And that what's interesting, I think what's important is that when we reflect like that, and we, we you know, developmental psychologists have given a lot of detail to how we learn how to function in the world, how we develop a sense uh, of self, a sense of objects. We use concepts in certain ways. And of course, if we can have ways that we don't come to do that well, and that's not a good thing. You know? But we, when we reflect on what children have gone through, we can see that it's actually a construction, that we come into this world 
we start maybe with what the philosopher William James called a buzzing, booming, booming confusion. That's what he said the newborn encounters. You know, something like, maybe, maybe it's not completely that. There's some, there's some orientation, but one has to learn about these objects. And, you know, the, you know, people who have been blind all their lives and come to vision later in life, when they open their eyes, do not see the same world that we see. They see shapes, apparently, and, you know, basically they see a chaos of form and shape and color. And they have to learn to construct the world in the same way. So, from that point of view, that could make it seem the world isn't as solid as we tend to assume that is actually a construction. And what the problem is, is not that we have those constructions, but that we tend to take those constructions as ultimate, as the way things really are. And in every spiritual tradition, sages and wise people have said, that's not a good assumption that actually when we look most deeply, things are not according to the ordinary construction. And that we have to go through a period of training in order to see in a different way. And after we've gone through that training, it's not like the ordinary world disappears, but we come to it in a little bit different way, but it's basically the phenomena are still the familiar phenomena. In Zen, there's a famous teaching that says, before I practiced Zen, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. After I began to practice Zen, mountains were no longer mountains and rivers were no longer rivers. But at a point of maturity, mountains were once again mountains and rivers were once again rivers. So... Don't worry. <laughs> but there is, there is a way that in practice we come to call that ordinary conditioning into question. And it can be disorienting. And as we could imagine, it could be at times even scary. Definitely when we go deeply, there are moments where we can be disoriented, where it can be actually fearsome which are uh, challenging moments. There's very good moments to have a teacher (laughs) who has gone through that process. Um, But there's something about our practice when we start going more deeply in which we call the ordinary constructions into question. Another way to say it is that the depths of human nature are beyond those constructions. We might say the depths of love And I think we know that intuitively and from experience. The depth of love take us beyond the rigid separation of self and other. The depths of connection with nature take us out of often a lot of these constructions. The constructions of separate self here, objects over there. We may feel much more of a unity and a sense of interconnection we may feel that things lose their solidity as I come into greater connection with other persons, with objects and things. You know? 
In fact, last time we were talking about, um, let me see where these, we were talking about ways that we can actually notice that sense of extraordinary mind in various ways. The meditative traditions point to how we can access that through meditative training, but we can also find those extraordinary states in all sorts of ways, you know, uh, sometimes through quite ordinary experience, sometimes through different kinds of training. So I, I brought in some, some uh, passages that, you know, we talked about how we can find sometimes that sense of extraordinary mind or heart body in the natural world. Uh, I, here's, a, here's a poem from Goethe from the um, 18th century, the German poet. The second poem, The Night Walker Wrote, is the name of the poem. There is a stillness on the tops of the hills. In the treetops, you feel hardly a breath of air. The small birds fall silent in the trees. Simply wait. Soon, you too will be silent. You can interpret that in a lot of different ways, but it's one way at least is that the, the language facility shifts. There's a poem by Rumi, some of you may know, where he says, shut the language door and open the love door. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful line. Um, Again, from uh, some of the romantic poets from the 18th and 19th century were very much into this, looking at how extraordinary awareness mind, heart, develops in the natural world. This is from, uh, again, another um, German poet named Novalis. The seed of the soul is where the inner world and the outer world meet. Where they overlap, it is in every point of the overlap. You get a sense of a very different way of experiencing, not ordinary objects. The seed of the soul is where the inner world and the outer world meet. Where they overlap, it is in every point of the overlap. So we could give a talk based on that quotation, so I won't, I won't unpack it now. Uh, and we talked about how we find that in other kinds of experiences. I brought in the book last time, a uh, book called Playing in the Zone, about how people experience that in sports. You know, marathon runners or people at certain um, heights. There's a beautiful book called The Future of the Body, Uh, by Michael Murphy, the co-founder of Esalen, who assembled. He was very interested in how these states appear in sports. He once wrote a book called Golf in the Kingdom, about kind of like a psychic Scottish golfer. (laughs) And, uh, but in that book, there are a lot of examples. And I I gave some readings from, I think, from a, a Russian weightlifter who talked about what he called the white moment of intensity, where everything Everything comes together. Or Bill Russell, I read from last time, the great Boston Celtics basketball player who was talking about this stuff. You know, for I, I, about a little over 10 years ago, I was editor of a journal called Revision, and I put together an issue on intimate relationships and spirituality. And one of the authors, who's since written a longer book, uh, named Jenny Wade, and some of you may know her, she lives in Marin, she collected a lot of passages and a lot of texts on, on how these kind of states appear um, 
actually in the act of making love. So I thought I'd read, I'd read two of these. They're really pointing to something quite extraordinary. But if you think of it as this, this uh, movement beyond the ordinary constructions of experience, that's kind of a ha- conceptual handle to understand this. So listen to this. This is one person describing um, um, being with, in this case, her lover. There is a unitive energy where the two truly become one. And once in a while you transcend even that. You become one with the universe. It's like a great light. And you feel yourself becoming one with your partner. And that is just the doorway you pass through into something beyond, something transcendent. Another person. The boundaries are completely dissolved and there is no longer any you or I but simply this. Then the this becomes love or compassion not only for the other person, but something or someone comes from the depth, so there is only one word to describe it. <coughs> yes. <laughs> but this yes that comes from the deepest depths is a yes to the entire universe, to the point where there is no longer a God or but one is dissolved into the numinous universe. So we don't offer those kind of workshops at Spirit Rock. <laughs> Maybe if we really want to develop fundraising for the new, the new building, we should go that direction. <laughs> Might attract more people than looking into impermanence and suffering. <laughs> anyway, so there are these... Um, you know, I think we know there, there are very similar passages in a meditative context. There are very, very similar passages. Um, I thought I'd read one from um, Thai forest tradition. This is, this is talking about the quality of awareness. Actually, I think first I'll, I'll remind us that in the teachings of the Buddha, this quality of uh, kind of the deepest nature is sometimes understood as nibbana or nirvana, and it's sometimes understood as a vast, deep, pure awareness that's beyond the ordinary constructions, beyond all of the ordinary constructions of, of life, of our ordinary experience. And yes, I think I will. This is from, the, this is from um, a Thai teacher who, who I had the pleasure to meet um, in the 1990s, called Achan Mahabua. This is from a book called Straight from the Heart, which is available on the web, this book. And this, I'll read a fairly long passage to get the flavor of this awareness beyond ordinary constructions, which is an, which is an awareness, and it tends to merge with love and compassion. Love, compassion, wisdom, insight. But the hallmark, listen as, as I read the passage, for how he talks about the ordinary constructions being transcended. You know, and one, th- one of the ways that, that we do that in meditation is that we take away the need, typically, for most pra- pragmatic concerns. So we go on, on a retreat. There's nothing that we need to attend to very much pragmatically, or it's minimalized. It's basically eating and sleeping. And the rest of the time we can just pay attention because a lot of the constructions of ordinary experience are there just to help us get around pragmatically in the world. And actually, if we look inside and look, for example, at our inner experience, 
we don't have so many concepts for the inner experience. For the outer experience, we have concepts for most things. Although, you know, we, some things, you know, like we know the Eskimos have 40 words for snow, so, so it's said, you know, because they need to actually have more precision with the outer world. But you think, what's there in the inner world? You know, can you describe, if you close your eyes, do you have words for the different sensations that you feel in your body? Well, maybe in a rough way, maybe yes, you can talk about pressure or hot, cold, tingling, and so forth, but it's a pretty undeveloped vocabulary. You know, think of, just go inside, even close your eyes, and go to your different senses. We don't have words for a vast amount of what goes on inside because we don't think it's so important pragmatically. You know. but, and so we create these conditions where we don't have the same pragmatic needs. That's why we come here, we meditate, we close our eyes. We have the potential to go through, to cut through the ordinary constructions. That's why we meditate in a protected environment. That's why we do retreats. It's easier to access when we don't have all these pragmatic needs. Eventually, the long-term aim is to be able to go to the deepest level of love and wisdom. Sometimes we have to have it get stronger and stronger in protected environments, but then eventually we bring it out into the ordinary world. Mountains are once again mountains. Rivers are once again rivers. From Achan Mahabua, a passage called The Conventional Mind, The Mind Released. So he's using terms something like what I'm using. He's using conventional where I used ordinary. But there's something else, there's another kind of mind that opens up. Once the ordinary mind has been well cleansed so that it, or once the mind has been well cleansed so that it is constantly radiant. So, so this, is, this is a lot of training he's talking about. Okay. Okay. So this is, the, this is the extraordinary mind shining through, so to speak. Once the mind has been well cleansed so that it is constantly radiant, then we are at a quiet place without any sounds, for instance, laid in the still of the night. Even if the mind hasn't gathered in concentration, we find that when we focus on the center of awareness, it is so exceedingly delicate and refined that it's hard to describe. So he's describing a very refined, almost pure awareness beyond the ordinary constructions. So listen to the words that he chooses. This refinement then becomes like a radiance which spreads all around us in every direction. Nothing appears to be making contact with the sense of sight, hearing, smell, taste, and feeling at that moment, even though the mind hasn't gathered into the factors of concentration. Instead, this is the firm foundation of the mind which has been well cleansed and which displays a striking awareness, magnificence, and sensitivity within itself. Within this type of awareness, it's as if we weren't dwelling in a body at all. This is a very refined awareness pronounced within itself. Even though the mind hasn't gathered in concentration, still, because of the refinement of the mind, it becomes a pronounced awareness without any visions or images appearing at all. This is one stage. Another stage is when the well-cleansed mind gathers into stillness, not thinking, not forming any thoughts at all. It rests from its activity, its rippling. All thought formations within the mind rest completely. All that remains is simple awareness, which is called the mind entering into stillness. 
Here even more so, nothing appears at all. All that appears is awareness, as if it were blanketing the entire cosmos, because the currents of the mind aren't like the currents of light. The currents of the mind have no near or far. To put it simply, there is no time or place. The mind can blanket everything. Far is like near. Near, far, they don't really apply. All that appears is the awareness blanketing everything to the ends of the universe. (coughs) So there are these passages like that. Or maybe I'll read one from the Tibetan tradition. This is from a 19th century teacher called Petrol Rinpoche. He talks about a total openness which is indescribable. And be another passage from the Tibetan tradition. This time, this, this is from the 14th century. And you can find similar passages if you would go into Christian or Sufi or Jewish or Islamic or um, Hindu mystics. If you do the proper translation, you'll hear something like this. This is from the 14th century Tibet, Longchenpa. This timelessly awakened awareness that entails no object, you hear the same thing, does not wander in samsara. It is beyond all basis for confusion. No one at all is confused, for there is no context for confusion. Everything lies within the scope of the basic space of phenomena, a single lucid expanse with no time frame. This spaciousness is equal to space itself. It is primordially pure, a timeless and spontaneously present state of utter relaxation. Mm. So how, you know, how do we access that? So two ways of practice that can start to access that extraordinary mind. And we do that in our ordinary experience when we simply bring mindfulness and hang out with the ordinary constructions of experience to the point where they start losing power. And our regular practice moves us in this direction. That's, I think, important to have the big map because we can see when I can just be with my breath and stay with it and stay in the present moment and watch the flow of the breath, as we may have been doing when I invited us to watch impermanence, we can sense that some of the constructions of ordinary experience aren't there in the same way. You know, that, for example, when we're very present-centered, we're deconstructing the ordinary sense of time, right? When we have that sense of present-centeredness and can stay with that in a sustained way. Something's happening to the sense of time. I think we experience that in our meditation probably quite readily. There's a sense of presence, a sense of being present. When we stay with the breath and we're with the flow of experience and we start to experience the breath as this impermanent flow, we're no longer objectifying everything. And we can begin to experience this with different parts. When I experience the sensations in my knee and I'm no longer saying, That's my knee. I'm no longer conceptualizing, but I'm just with the impermanent flow. 
that is starting to deconstruct the ordinary conceptual world. When I am with suffering, you know, so these guided meditations that I did are a very effective way to move in this direction, to have really focused awareness on impermanence, on where we get thick, where there's some moment of suffering, because that's where the sense of self gets very, what, uh, pronounced, right? And so when we notice the sense of self, where it gets thick, in suffering or just in something like self-image, and when we're constantly watching those phenomena, a kind of deconstruction starts to happen. This is, mo- this is starting to open up the possibility of that extraordinary mind shining through. And it may shine through for moments. But we can work with just the usual way we do mindfulness practice. But if we give special attention to impermanence, and it's not anything necessarily very dramatic, you can just, I used to sit, I used to um, live in Virginia, and uh, our family had land in the Virginia mountains. And I used to sit by a creek. It was, it was right at the, near the, um, kind of the, the divide. So it was the highest point of the mountains of the Appalachians. And the creek was called Bat Creek. <laughs> and I used to sit with Bat Creek and just sit with the sounds of the creek for hours and hours and hours. And you can do it with music. See, music we don't objectify in the same way. We can. We can say, oh, there's that, there's that. Here comes, you know, here comes the guitar solo or whatever, <laughs> you know. But we can, we can stay with phenomena and train to deconstruct objects. Train to be with more of the flow. See where we create objects. And again, nothing wrong with objects, but we're, we have a training where we can learn to perceive in a different way. And the, again, the, the um, teaching is that when we do that, we come to see more accurately. That we're not bound by conventional constructions Learn for the sake of just getting about in the world. And that we can actually access deeper love, deeper compassion, deeper wisdom. That's the why we do this. And that we won't become hopelessly uh, what um, paralyzed at dealing with the world. Now, after retreats, we have to be a little careful. Sometimes people have been known after retreats to go out on Sir Francis Drake and drive in a 50, what's it, 55 mile zone. 55 mile zone at 15 miles an hour. <laughs> so people have to go, we, for longer retreats, we do a transition period. Say, remember ordinary reality? Here it is. <laughs> let's talk together. Let's talk in a normal way and so forth. But the training, um, we, we do deconstruct. And so if you want to follow this, some of those guided meditations can be very, very helpful. And you can do a lot just in three or four minutes. Harder to maintain for a longer period at first. With training, you can actually hang out with impermanence hour after hour. But in the beginning, very good, do it for three minutes. Do it for five minutes with a lot of focus. Stay with your experience. Work with suffering. Work with um, uh, noticing when self arises. Work with that last guided meditation, which was around what could be called choiceless awareness. You know, where we just are Noticing. We do this first with our eyes closed. We just, and this demands a certain level of concentration, but we can actually stay with experience. 
just notice it and stay with wherever the mind goes. Okay, it goes now to sensation, okay, it goes to thinking, without trying to stay with the breath, but we have the intention to stay with whatever's predominant. So there is a focus. There's a focus on just the um, experience of whatever it is. So we, we basically, it's like tracking, it's almost like I'm watching the movie of my own mind, and I have a very clear intention to track, notice, focus on whatever comes in the present frame of the movie, but I don't choose what's going to come into that present frame. I let whatever is happening, happening. Doing that, we start letting go of the doer. It's a way of letting go of the self. Maybe I'll end with a story, and then I think I'm, I was, um, I know what I'm going to do two weeks from now, because I, I want to give some time for a discussion, because it's a very interesting topic. But I'll, I'll just tell a story um, and this actually starts to go into what I'll deal with next week, which is the um, ways to directly access extraordinary mind. What I've been describing is the gradual accessing of extraordinary mind through the deconstruction of ordinary experience in our ordinary meditation, in our usual meditation, with particular ways that we can enhance that by focusing on impermanence and so forth. And it's also possible to directly go to extraordinary mind, at least for a moment or two, and to get a sense of that kind of large awareness that Achan Mahabhu was talking about. Get a sense of that and be able to tune into that more readily. You know, and maybe some of us do that. Maybe some of us go out into the, the natural world and there's a way that you just relax and let your mind get big. Right? How many people do something like that in some settings? Right? You just, and, and there are practices like that which I think I promised for today, and I hope this isn't like, I hope this is, doesn't make you too irritated, but I'm going to, I think I'm going to choose to have a little more discussion today and really give only focus on this next time, which, which is two weeks. But a story to end, which is one way of accessing this extraordinary mind. I was once um, doing a, it was about a 12-day retreat, and I was doing it with uh, Christopher Titmus, who teaches in England, other parts of the world. And he, um, he, I had worked with him for some time, and he gave me this guidance for the, re- I was on my own, it wasn't an organized retreat, but I was seeing him every few days. He gave me this guidance. Don't do anything, but don't be distracted. Don't meditate. <coughs> Don't do anything, but don't be distracted. He also said, be aware of the absolute. He didn't explain what he meant by that. (laughs) So those are my instructions for 12 days. And I really got into the not doing, so to speak. But it was very, very interesting Because the initial process, and you could try this sometime, for meditation, try to don't do anything, but keep aware. So I would find myself sometimes kind of trying to meditate to be with, you know, be aware of the breath or be aware of what I was seeing. But when I would do that, I would just let go of it. I would continually let go. 
and it wasn't so easy. You know, it was very, you know, the habit of meditating was very strong. And it was also hard, if I wasn't meditating, how can I pay attention without trying to pay attention? So you could see that what was being invited was a way of awareness that didn't involve conscious intention and a sense of the actor or the doer. It was awareness without the doer. So you know, we could say, in retrospect, it was a way to deconstruct the doer because, rest assured, for all of us, there is a doer who is meditating. <laughs> that ultimately has to be also itself seen and let go of. Maybe next week, we'll, next time we'll focus on that. So this was, this was my practice. I was invited to do that. And it, some of it was really humorous. I would notice myself being in this non-doing aware place for periods of time. And I would notice myself congratulating myself for how well I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> Pat myself on the back. You're really doing non-doing really well. <laughs> Which made me laugh for quite a while when I heard that voice in my mind. It was like, you know, it was like the... The self was appropriating, what, um, praise for getting out of the way. <laughs> well. <laughs> so it was very, very interesting. But it, it started to open up to this larger awareness. So that, that's just an example. You know, there's so a lot of the training that we do in various ways, we can see it as opening up to something larger. And so um, next time I'll give some direct ways of accessing this extraordinary awareness. And I'll do a little bit of a review of today, but I think I want to rest here because really the focus has been on really understanding the ordinary constructions and seeing how our practice can help us to um, see them in a different way where we are um, no longer quite buying in to their ultimacy which again can be challenging because we ultimately come to a point when we've worked through this more and more where the appearances, everything looks kind of the same but we don't buy in in the same way. And so something's different. It's that mountains are mountains, rivers are rivers, then they're not, mount- then they're not mountains and not rivers, but then they are, but it's in a different way. Let's just sit for a few moments, then we can talk together. Thank you for your kind attention and uh, have some time for discussion. Uh, and why don't we say our names also as we speak? Hi, I'm Andy. Yeah. Um, I would just wonder that the, when we did the pre-meditation. Yeah. What was the last one? The last one was looking for a sense of self. This is a, this is related to a teaching. The question was about what the those guided meditation. Oh, the last one was choiceless awareness. But the before that. Before that. 
what I did was I did four guided meditations. The first three are related to a very fundamental teaching called the teaching of the three characteristics of phenomena. Those three characteristics are impermanence, suffering, that is if we hold on to them or have reactivity, and uh, a sense of um, ultimately that phenomena are um, not connected with a solid separate self. So it's called, um, sometimes called a not-self or anatta. The first one is anicca, the second is dukkha, and the third is anatta. Those would be very fundamental teaching. And doing these guided meditations for short periods of time can be really, really skillful. Because you can get a taste of it and then kind of bring it out. For, you know, for three minutes we can really, really focus and just watch the flow of impermanence. You know, if I asked you to do it for 40, we might be distracted. And then the last guided meditation was on choiceless awareness, which is also a very, uh, very good way station. These practices can really accelerate the looking at the constructed nature of experience when we, when we work with them. Choiceless awareness is very helpful also. We can do it first with the eyes open. It's then possible to start opening up the eyes, which is of course very hard because the eyes are so conditioned to see objects, right? And it's possible to train the eyes so that we don't immediately construct objects in the usual way and still have the eyes open noticing shapes and colors. That's a more advanced training, but it's possible to, to go there. It's also very interesting when one trains like that, you can actually, it's almost like changing the lens. You can focus, okay, I will now go to seeing objects. Okay, I will now not go to seeing objects. You can do that internally, you can do that with the eyes open. But those four guided meditations can be very, very, very helpful, very interesting. Thanks, Andy. Yeah. Patty? Yeah. Um, my question is about, in deconstruction, yeah. I can understand the concept of the things that I'm aware to deconstruct. Yeah. And I think about culture a lot, of all those cultural influences that I'm not really aware yeah. of. And is there a way to, I feel like in order to really deconstruct, you have to bring in those things that you don't even necessarily know are constructing you. Yeah. No, it's a great question. Question about the, um, the just the extent of what the constructions or conditioning um, is, and to what extent can we get at the cultural conditioning, which like is maybe the, you know, the the air we breathe, so to speak, right? And so, how do we get at that? And it might be, you know, we can think of cultural conditioning. Some of it. That's kind of most obvious to us that culturally we've been looking at maybe like gender roles or how gender, how my internalized sense of gender affects my moment to moment experience. It's not pretty subtle, it can be at a pretty subtle level, right? And so, how do we work with that? Um, I think that I mean, to me it's a very um, creative aspect of practice. And um, in the traditional teachings, there wasn't always so much awareness of culture. And I think that we can actually, um, I mean, some of it occurs just when we go to uh, a deconstructed place, that I think we, some of the cultural conditioning um, came up. You know, like you can even see reading texts from 2,000 years ago, you can see women 
going to places, even though it was a very patriarchal culture in much of India and other parts of Asia at that time, one can see texts and passages which cert, where, where they actually say, basically, this cultural conditioning doesn't make any sense that I live in. You can see passages like that, that they've come to simply by going more deeply. So some of it happens like that. I think some of it could happen by, um, you know, having people design practices that help us work through that conditioning. You know, I think in our time, we do that, again, we can do, probably it's most active with cultural conditioning around things like gender, race, age, sexual orientation, that people have developed trainings which help people to look at the conditioning around that. You know, and, and I think that, to me, one of the really interesting creative places in practice is where that deconstruction of cultural assumptions gets connected with traditional practice. And I think it's, um, you know, when I, when I work with engaged practice, I think that's one of the things we try to bring in. But it's at an early, early place in, of development, so very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah please. When you, from, from myself, when I have gone into a place where, um, for me, it's like all warmth and white and, you know, it's definitely not of my regular thinking. And I automatically, uh, it's like, <gasps> what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah, it's a question how to work with the fear which can come when, we, when there is some deconstruction of ordinary assumptions. So first of all, to know that it comes with the territory. You know, it's very, it's very, I mean, it's very natural. You know, suppose we've lived for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years with certain organizing principles of experience. And then we start to put those in question. How many of us would just sort of blithely follow down that path carefree. <laughs> you know, it's challenging, you know. And so um, definitely there, are, there can be times, there are times when some fear or anxiety can arise. When, you know, I can remember when I did the first retreat that I did where a sense of self was really um, challenged. I had a lot of fear. In fact, I actually sat with fear for the better part of two weeks, right? most of the time. And um, so the basic, basic answer would be, if I um, know that it's part of the territory, that it's normal, that's very helpful. Um, it's very helpful when fear arises to, it depends on the level, it can be a, like a passing anxiety or it can be, it can be challenging at times. Um, it's in that, um, when that's happening, it's very good to be in relationship with a teacher, to have a, some you know, context that holds you. To ha- Sometimes it's helpful to have some understanding of phases that one goes through and to understand that this is a phase. Um, sometimes it's wise to pull back. Sometimes it's wise just to stay with it. And that, that would depend on the time. You know, if it's... Um, uh, but, but ultimately, um, it's something that, we, that if we have the resources, it's really good just to stay with it. You know, if we can really stay with it, notice it, because it passes. Some of it's just, it's like, the, it's like the fear 
of any new experience or any new learning, right? How many people were afraid when you f went away to college, if you, if you attended college? Do you remember going away from home? You know, it's like can be a lot of anxiety. You, how many people stayed with it? <laughs> Stay with it. You can work with it. So um, if you can, and um, yeah. And there are different, there, you know, there are different kinds where you can feel a little bit of what? Uh, vertigo sometimes. You know, and the, the deconstruction can happen in a few different ways. Sometimes it's through meditation. Sometimes one, you know, there, there are some of the types of training can actually be more conceptually based. And from a, you know, it's possible to use concepts to deconstruct concepts. You know, and some Buddhist traditions actually do that. So they, you know, they, they look at the relativity of all our concepts. And you can do that intellectually. Intellectually, we could take our main concepts and show how they're just constructions. You know, and that, you know, I know I've done that at times as a practice, and it's, whoa. <laughs> yeah. So... Maybe one more, and then please. Yeah, my name's yeah. Didn't uh, dr drugs really speed it up deconstruction? Say, say again. Oh, drugs. Okay. <laughs> drugs really speed up deconstruction. Yeah. I mean, that's why so many stories through the history. Everybody was drawn to that. Yeah. Yeah. Would drugs be a more efficient way to go? <laughs> I had no. <laughs> um, you may I have, we have a few minutes for a response. You want me to take the whole subject of drugs in a few minute or two? Okay. Okay. But do you feel they're useful that way? Well, we have to specify which uh, drugs you're talking about. Um, um, it's a big, big question, right? So, um, you know, historically, in certain settings which have a strong container and strong understanding, I think certain kinds of what we would call. Um, Sometimes are called psychedelic, or what's what's the other word? What? There's a modern word that's 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 used, but you know, in many cultures, those are used as a way to access different ways of seeing, and usually within a very supportive context. So where there's not that supportive context, it obviously gets very problematic. Uh, personally, you know, I um, used different drugs uh, when I was like in my teens and 20s, pretty much. I haven't much since then. And they were, they were, you know, they opened up certain doors, but they, they also brought side effects and that, that weren't so helpful because it wasn't mostly in a, it wasn't mostly, we might say, in a sacred container. <laughs> Sometimes very good containers, but not. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, my, from my own experience, um, I think um, there are a lot of ways to um, go in the same direction without drugs. You know, someone like Stanislav Grof, for example, who lives in Marin. How many know his work? Yeah. You know, originally was one of the great world researchers on LSD, primarily in um, his native Czechoslovakia, you know, in 
beautiful books that report uh, the results of um, he used it in a you know as a in a therapeutic context with a lot of people who were very uh, troubled or disturbed and had some very remarkable results and later went to I think to uh, Baltimore in the US to uh, to clinics there and was doing that work and then when that when LSD was outlawed um, he developed uh, non-drug methods to go pretty much into the same places using meditation, music, uh, certain kinds of breathing. And so um, I think in, in our times, uh, I think it's a personal decision and it can be helpful, but they, my experience was that um, they, they um, could open things up, but they were, they, they, there, were, there, was a, there were other things that happened that often could be not very helpful and with certain personalities could be highly destructive. So, um, so, I, so a little more um, what um, kind of results were non-discriminating. They're just like all sorts of things happen, right? And um, some of them could be um, some of them could be quite harmful and quite you know. I have a fair number of friends who were casualties of those years, not a f- you know some. So the uh, purity is not is questionable of what you're getting. A lot of there are a lot of problems. So. So I think that, you know, from my perspective, um, um, a variety of meditative and other tools are so accessible now that um, I would, you know, but on the other hand, I do have friends who, who have a lot of experience who mostly are connected. The friends I have who use those are mostly connected with shamans, mostly from like South America, who, who use that as part of their regular practices. So, and seem to have, you know, have very good setups and from what I gathered the results have been almost entirely positive. You know, but that that's in a very special setting. So there's my kind of a tricky question to ask at the end of the session. So, should we do a whole talk on that topic sometime? Okay. Um, so but it's a, it's, a, it's an important question because it's been historically very important. So my hope is um, my hope is that the that there is a further understanding of some of the horizon of practice that's really that in which we can see this interesting relationship that we have to the ways we construct experience, which are both helpful, necessary, and, and necessary but also to the extent that we lock into these ordinary assumptions and say, okay, this is reality, they become problematic. You know, and a lot of the meditative traditions are saying that the depths of our love and our wisdom and our, our deeper beautiful nature is actually um, only opens up when the ordinary constructions are suspended, at least temporarily. We can then go back and use them and function in an ordinary way in the world and be of use and be helpful and you know, pay our bills on time and so forth. But the, um, there's maybe a different understanding that we come from. And, and that's what these practices are for. And so it really can give you know, some very direct ways that we work with the practice as we've been instructed in the ordinary way. It goes in this direction. If you want to speed it up some, you can work with the... Uh, practices with impermanence, with no, really tracking any moment of suffering, 
and tracking sense of self. Not trying to get rid of any of that stuff, just tracking, just mindfulness, just noticing. And then maybe that choiceless awareness also. And maybe to have this as part of one's horizon. And then when there are moments where something larger happens, tune into it, notice it, and maybe see how you got there. And see if, because there are ways that when we train the mind and we've been to these places, it's like we know the path. It's like uh, there's a, almost like a path through our consciousness <coughs> that we know how to get there. You know, shaman hears one beat of the drum and goes somewhere else. You know, sometimes we can sit down and meditate or close the eyes and we just go to this more open place and we can know how to do that internally you know, without trying, without effort, but it's just more intuitively. That's kind of the direction we're going. Good. So let's just sit for a moment and invite what may have been most helpful from today and your intentions, let's say, for the next two weeks. We'll meet again, I'll meet again here in two weeks and I'll bring in those more um, kind of special instructions to access this extraordinary mind and heart in a more immediate way. At the end, we can reflect on how we practice, both for our own growing freedom and also for the freedom of others, to be of use, to be of help to others, remembering both and how they're interconnected. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.